Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community, or join both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainer Sander Durr and his guests in an all-new episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mastering Agility podcast. Today joining me, at least not today, hopefully we're running an experiment to see how Jim likes this, and maybe he's going to be my new Batman to be being Robin and being my co-host for the Mastering Agility podcast. I would love that. I think Jim's energy is awesome. Give maybe a little bit of a intro- short introduction for yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is Jim Sammons. I am a lot of things. Um, I think I'm a professional scrum trainer like you. So I know maybe too much about scrum and I teach and train and am very active in that community. I am also a business owner. I'm a working agile consultant. I've spent the last 12 to 13 years doing agility all day, every day. And sometimes that means I roll up my sleeves and help clients do things. Sometimes it means I run workshops or facilitate events. Uh, And then I also love the coaching and mentoring side of what we do and just growing and developing people and clients. And I'm based in the Midwest of the U.S. right now, and I have clients on three continents right now. So my, my day like yours is probably a little flexible when it comes to scheduling. How do you deal with those those time zones? Because I, from my experience, I know it can be quite tough and and challenging to schedule your day, especially if they're, uh, you know, you have to wake up a lot earlier than you usually do. Doesn't it really mess up your whole flow? It, it can, and right or wrong, I've always been the type of person who works when I need to as much as I need to, and that could be at two a.m. or it could be at you know noon. Um. But one of the nice things I'm doing, and, and it kind of came up this morning, is making sure that everybody that I'm working with has clear expectations of me and they know when I when I work and where I work and all that. Um, and I try and work with professionals and adults who don't want to micromanage me. Uh, but I've gotten kind of lucky that right now I have some people in the Chicago time zone and then I have some people in the Netherlands uh, and a few people in the middle. So there's not a lot of overlap. So right now, it never feels like I'm in the wrong place, but I have had the experience in the past where if I zigged, I should have zagged for this other person, or if I you know, zagged, I should have zigged. And sometimes that was even at one company, and I just had teams in India, Scotland, the US, and it just, it's, as you, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's stressful. Um, how do you, do you balance it, or are you lucky in that you only have to worry about maybe one clock right now i have to work with only one clock yes but that's like i think that has been the case since the last four months ish because before i used to work with clients in latin america completely different culture completely different time zone as well so i would be spending a whole lot of my evening as well especially when i'm working with the u.s or latin america then my my day is yeah it's all over the place I do think in that sense that the whole pandemic has showed us or kind of forced us to learn how to deal with these kind of things. And I think that's a funny, um, it's funny to see how we tend to think in impossibilities very easily. Because if you look back prior to the whole pandemic and to the whole clown show, it's like 
no, you're not going to work from home. That doesn't work. We can't trust you. Blah, 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 blah. Pandemic hit. Now you have to. And see, we can. Right. Yeah. I think what's harder for me than handling different time zone is the different cultures of the companies or the, the location of people. And for almost two years, I was at one client and it was very difficult at times to drop a call with Germany where they have a very typical way of, of speaking, making decisions, uh, discussing difficult topics. And then I jump into a call full of a bunch of people from, you know, London where, you know, talking about things at an extremely high level was just every day. And then my next call might be with somebody in, um, France or Latin America or Texas. And that was almost harder to navigate was the different types of teams and communication styles than it was the time on the clock for me. Do you think it makes you more like culturally flexible that you have to deal with all these kind of things? And sure, in the beginning it was super hard, but did you notice any measurably, measurably changing aspects to dealing with different in cultures my, in myself from or your others. side or from others. Yeah. I mean, you know, this might make me sound a little bad, but prior to 2018, I did not have a, a ton of stamps in my passport, let's say. And in 2018, that all changed in a big way. And I'm, I'm not going to say I'm some big global traveler, but I got to experience a lot of different cultures very quickly. Because all my cultural exposure in the workplace up to that was based on wherever I was working or wherever my clients, however geographically spread they were. So 2018, that all changed. And I learned that something I would say in the US would not translate. Like whether it was an analogy I made, um, a comment I made, it wasn't about offending people. It was just about the translation of things. The other thing that I have just always done naturally as a person is ask questions about like, what's it like where you live? And I remember one meeting I had a couple months ago, somehow the team got on the topic of their kitchen and I mentioned the phrase garbage disposal. And somebody from uh, one of the Scandinavian countries said, well, what's a garbage disposal? I'm like, you know, it's the thing in your sink that grinds up all the food and you know, that's where you do the dishes. And he said, we, we don't have these here. Like you still have those. He's like, we haven't had those since the seventies. I'm like, Oh my God. Like every house, every <laughs> house or apartment in the U S I would say 90% of them have one of those. And that led to the team talking. And the manager of that team asked me after like, that was amazing. I learned something about them and where they live. And we don't normally do stuff like that. Is that agility? And I go, no, that that's not agility. That's just caring about people. That's just being curious. Yeah. This is genuine curiosity. And they're like, and that story kind of repeated itself many, many times at this company to the point where they were like, you know, Jim, the way you do things isn't normal, but we love it. And they thought I'd spend all day, every day talking about points and backlog items and scrum this and Kanban this and what they really realize is I was building connections and awareness between people and teams. It's funny to see how people are blind to that, right? 
It's um, it's it's a challenging thing as well because how to deal with that and how to make sure that people actually notice that. Uh, but it's 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 good in a way that I don't want to use the word bigotry, but people are more culturally enriched. Yeah. You know, I people are not necessarily on purpose blind to these kind of things. But this way, you learn and you develop more, and whether that's because of traveling or because of the pandemic, and now you can access different kinds of cultures in a different right. way. Uh, but I think in that sense, it's a good development. Yeah. What I also think is a good development is the, the, the fact that we now have a nice mural board with questions coming out of our field. Horrible. Segue, no, it's good. It? Not abrupt at all. <laughs> and changing core is like 180 degrees over hey, we're question. We have no, to we're, so. Very true. Very true. Because what we have now, dear listeners, is a mural board with open and open questions and that we would like to answer. So there's always something to do for us. And we take these questions coming out of our courses, whether that's Scrum.org courses that we teach or something else. Um, but we also have an audience today. And in the audience today, we have at least Marge, who guided us to answering the question of what is a typical product owner day look like? What does he do all day? Yeah. Jim, what does he do or she? Yeah. Um, well, I think that one of the things they got to do is first check if anybody needs them. Like one of the things I tell product owners is I do not expect them to be at the beck and call of the teams or anyone really, but it's, do, am I impeding the flow of anything right now? Like that's my first thing in the morning after they get their coffee and all that. I would love it if they would open up something that helps them get their arms or brain around all the work, whether that's a dashboard or something. Because if product owners, in my opinion, if they're doing their job, they are balancing a lot of things. It's like those people that spin all the plates. They've got a lot of plates spinning. And I don't know about you, but I can't keep track of all the plates that just I have spinning. And I'm not really a product owner without help from tools, whether that tool is a Sharpie and a Post-it or it's Jira or Azure DevOps or some site or some tool that I have adapted. So I think that's kind of like some of the first things. What do you think? Like uh, if you put yourself in the shoes of a product owner and said, it's 9.01 a.m. local time, what are the, how do you think they would spend their first hour? Before going into that, into, into, Jesus. into that, I think the question that you just asked, like, am I impeding flow mm. anywhere, is such a powerful question, but requires a lot of introspection in your ability to actually put yourself in sort of emotional harm's way, if you will. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and hopefully that's pretty challenging. Hopefully the, the team and the product owner and the, the organization has a way of easily finding out, am I impeding flow? Like maybe they use some, maybe they use Microsoft teams to say, Hey, you know, Cherie, you're, you're in our way. Like we need a decision on a, B or C or something, because if they just have to look around, that's going to be a problem. So one of the things yeah. that I've been helping one of my clients understand is if you need something from someone else, we're talking about it today, but how are you letting them know? 
How are you getting more visibility that, hey, by the way, I know you're asleep right now, but when you wake up, we really need this. And here's why it's so important we hear from you today. Yeah, love that. Yeah. Coming back to your question, what do I think? Um, I think the question that I ask my product owners most is if the world would burn down tomorrow, what would you maximize on the product? What, what is it that you would do on the product right now? Usually I get something, well, I'm not going to work on the product, but I'm going to spend time with my family, but take that out of the equation. When you, If it's only you, the world, and the product, what would you do to maximize the value coming out of the product? Yeah. And if you know that, then you can hone in on where to focus and what not to do. And I see too many headless chickens running around just doing whatever because there's work because someone mentions that. I think this is important. Okay, but I'm going to chase that. Focus. Really, what's the minimal thing to do to maximize the outcome? Right. Um, Gosh, it was probably months ago at this point, but a product owner was kind of asking me these type of things like, Jim, this is what I'm doing most days. We are looking at their calendar and he said, is this what I should be doing? And I said, all right, let's let's take one step back. And I confirmed through some questions that he felt accountable and responsible for a product. Okay. And I said, okay, I have one question to ask you. And I go, what are you afraid of? And he just sat there. He goes, what do you, what do you mean? What am I afraid of? I go, you just told me that you feel a sense of ownership and accountability and responsibility for this product. So what are you afraid of? And he goes, I'm afraid of a lot of things. I go, okay, let's talk about some. And he's like, well, I'm afraid that this isn't going to get done. I'm afraid that they're not going to like this, or I'm afraid that this decision I made last. And I go, those are the things that we should spend our time on today. And he goes, I don't like admitting that I'm afraid of something. I go, nobody does. But if a product owner for a product like his, which was big and had a lot of paying customers that were pretty demanding, was not afraid of something, I would say you're either putting your head in the sand or maybe you're that rare case that's just crushing it. But most product owners I talk to, maybe if they won't use the word afraid, they will at least say anxious or stressed or worried. Yeah. And I also think if there is no sense of stress or no sense of fear, then something is off as yeah. well. Have you seen that? And it's the same sorry, with... Go ahead. No, Have you go seen ahead. that stress curve diagram like that's been out there in the world for a long time? Like where we do our best work when it's like the far left is no stress and the far the peak is maximum stress. Oh uh, no, yeah. I haven't seen it. And again, I'm I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express and I'm not a neuroscientist or anything like that, but the way that I understand it is humans do their best work when we have a moderate amount of stress, like no stress, we tend to not do really anything or the right things, et cetera. And too much stress, immediately we plummet over that cliff to low effectiveness again. So I think I agree wholeheartedly with you is if we're not at least stressed or anxious or concerned about something, I just don't think we're going to do good work. But if we're stressed to the max and we're at an 11 every day, I can't see that as being good either. No. Do you consider stress to be just like cortisol running or is it, could it be positive stress as well? Like 
being excited, being hyped about something. And therefore, we're going to start running, and that creates a little bit of stress and anxiety. Yeah, I, I think I'm using the word stress as in the non-medical term as um, I'm stressed about something, or maybe I'm stressing something, which means like I want to focus on this thing. Or you and I might stress a system, meaning we're going to test it to see if it bends, breaks, reacts, etc. Um, but... It's yeah, I think it's kind of a mixture in my brain of worried, um, focused on, concerned with, afraid of. I think all of those things can create the type of stress I'm talking about. Especially those, what is it, four factors that you mentioned. I think that would be if you have to sum up the day, what does it or sum up the question and the answer? What does a product owner do all day? Is gonna be that. Be anxious, be nervous a little bit. Be excited. Be, I don't know, balancing a whole lot of stuff. And I think that is, if you want to sum it up, because I don't think there's a typical day or it, what does he do all day, is this. Yeah. Go through a whole list of different emotions. If you are a product, proper product owner, because, you know, there there are so many organizations that have that glass ceiling where they product owners can push to a certain extent, but they're not really owning the product and therefore they are being cradled a little bit. Yeah. All right. Hush little baby. You can do whatever you want, but you're not let, let us take all the budgetary concerns out of your way. Let us do everything for you because we don't trust you, but we're not going to say that, but you do you and we'll make your life as easy or stressful as possible. Yeah. You know, in that conversation I had with this person, when they answered my question about like what were they afraid of and stressed about and all that, they gave me a mixture of what I would call short-term things and long-term things. And I said, okay, which do we need to focus on? Because the thing that you're worried about, like that big trade show at the in October, there's there's probably not much we can do on that today. But let's not forget about it. And we tended to focus that conversation on things right in front of them. And I remember telling him, that doesn't mean you can ignore the stuff that's next month or the stuff that's six months from now. And I think that's one of the hardest things for product owners is understanding you can't just be worried about what's right in front of you and like sprint to sprint or month to month, or you'll look ineffective, the team will be stressed, you won't be able to set a vision, but you also can't just be a visionary thinking eight months in the future because there's likely things right in front of you that you need to do. Like have you have you ran across a product owner who's like maybe good at one of those and not good at the other? Oh yeah, all the time. I think to to look at a proper product owner, how he's ideally or meant to be working like fully accountable. I've only come across that once and all the others sort of fall in this category. How do you, so what advice would you give somebody who's like, let's say really good at the short-term tactical, the, the team really likes their firefighter type mentality, but they're not doing the long-term stuff. I think this accounts to, you know, the, the product management vacuum. Like connecting, what are we doing in the sprint goal level, on the sprint level? How does that relate to our product vision? Like what are those intermediate steps? And then look how those connect to uh, company vision. Yeah. 
And what's the connection between those? And if we can start making small steps towards those and making sure that we actually fit those pieces together, it makes their lives a whole lot easier as well because you have to manage the product backlog, right? You have to order that backlog. And you can start doing that by, by firefighting, but continuously firefighting is exhaustive. Right. You're going to be drained all the time. And I think if you would... Um, what's the word? Not outsource, but delegate the work to other people in the team, like the not necessarily high impact stuff in the product backlog, and delegate that work to developers or to Scrum Master because the product owner could decide to delegate that work. Right. right. Then you, as a product owner, can focus on doing the more high impactful, more stressful stuff and how that relates and connects to product goals, product vision. Invite your See somewhere in the board or hire a manager to come to your sprint review and discuss and share something about the company vision and how the work that the scrum team is doing, how that relates and connects uh, to each other. And therefore open up a more space and mental space for your product owner to make that connection. How do those, how do those pieces combine and connect and what do we need to do on the mid to long term? I, I, I love that. And, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And one of the things I tell product owners when they show me their calendar is I'm like, I see that you're busy, but we've got to figure out what can you stop doing so that you can do all the things that you want to do and that you need to do and that the company and the team and the product need you to do. But asking you to just continuously do more and more is unreasonable, which is why, like you said, they have to be able to delegate or outsource, right? I think outsourcing is a valid lever that many companies and teams can pull consciously. It's I just don't like it to be the first one, and I don't like it to be the de facto one like, oh, we're busy, let's outsource that. Or the, the, the team's X metric isn't looking good, so let's hire more people. I, I think, but when used correctly in, in the right time and place, it can be extremely powerful. And I think there's a, there's a different side of the spectrum as well, where people tend to think they are super important and necessary for all the meetings that they're invited to. But if you have a, like a global look at the calendar, where am I really needed and where can I be missed? They could clear up like at least half of their schedule. Right. Oh yeah. The, the, what I call FOMO, like fear of missing out is so responsible for many people's calendars that it's, uh, it, it, it's concerning for me because when I at, when I go meeting by meeting and say, why are you in that meeting? Well, what if they ask me something about my project? Or what if, uh, you know, Sander is there and he needs something from me? I'm like, what if you're not there? What is Sander going to do? If Sander needs something from you and you're not there, what is he going to do? Well, he'll probably send me a Teams message or an email or text me. I'm like, okay, is that all right? They're like, well, yeah, that'd be okay. I said, okay. And then you can kind of do that. And I'm sure their calendar is a mixture of things they truly should be at and a lot of things maybe they shouldn't. And it's my belief most people either don't think of things like that or they are afraid to not go somewhere for either a real or perceived thing. They're, they're afraid of something that may or may not be uh, likely whatsoever. And it's insanely expensive as well. Like this would be just one mm -hmm. person and the U S rates are different. Let's say you have a, what is it? An average hour, uh, our rate of 
give and take 300 sure. bucks. If you're pulled into a two hour meeting just for this single point and you're spending your two hours twisting your thumbs until this question comes up, <clears throat> you're spending 600 euros or dollars, whatever you want, just to wait for this question. That could have else been a message in Teams or Slack or wherever. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, if anyone well, listening has a three hundred dollar an hour job for me to twiddle my thumbs, please email me. I'm I'm very interested. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, for a while, I kept one of those chess timers next to my desk. Uh, you know where you can like slap either side and it keeps track because I had watched the Queen's Gambit a couple years ago and I just bought one as like less than twenty bucks. And every once in a while during a meeting, I would just hit the timer and I would see how long it took that group to get to a certain decision or get to an endpoint or something. And I would reflect it back to them and they're like, holy crap, we talked about that for 26 minutes. I'm like, uh-huh. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I said, so that decision cost this team of leaders, what, $2,000? And it's also the way that these kind of meetings are structured, right. right? And how they are facilitated. Usually, let's let's say just you and me. We have like ten leaders in a meeting, and you ask them plenary a question, a random one. What do you define as value? And just have them discuss that in a group setting, right? Like open ended. It's going to go on for hours without any any productive output. Yeah. If you would use, for instance, liberating structures, which I still don't see happening that often, you would come to a whole different conclusion. Right. But we're kind of kind of drifting away from the original question, like what does a product do, a product owner do all day? I think we have sort of answered that question in a very elaborate way. Yeah. What do you think? Agreed. All right, cool. Let's move that to answered questions section. Now, you dropped a specific bomb over here. <laughs> sure. Enlighten us. So this came from a conversation um, with a group of people, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. The, this, what I'm about to read was the answer to the question, the open question, how would you define Scrum? And the context I gave the group before I kept my mouth shut was, let's say you're at the holidays and you're talking to some family or friends who don't know the first thing about Scrum. How would you define it to them succinctly, like less than 20 seconds? Their answer is, Scrum is driving a team with a set of ceremonies that allow the team to be self-managed. So... I know my thoughts on it because I've had the benefit of thinking about it for a few months. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on their answer? Uh, listen, the, the term ceremonies, I do not completely understand where it comes from, but it kind of makes my toes curl. It, yeah, I don't know. Ceremonies are events with a religi religious connotation, and I know... Some people, especially if you just have a random stroll through LinkedIn, people tend to treat agile or scrum or whatever like it's a like it's a religion, and you have to 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 go to 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 church of the sprint reviews and all of these kind of things. It's it's overcomplicating things. And the other one was, as we quickly discussed before, the, the driving word. The word driving. How does it? How does Scrum drive a team? I'm not sure. 
But right. Think? And so to come back to ceremonies, um, I agree that many ceremonies have a religious component, but think about like a graduation um, or a wedding, which not all weddings are religious, but um, uh, opening of the Olympics, that's a ceremony. I mean, it's like right in the title, I think the opening ceremony. To me, my struggle with the word ceremony is it feels very much like a spectator thing. Whereas an event or even a meeting or a workshop or a working session, those all feel very active to me. Those feel like things that maybe I'm not looking forward to them, but at least I know it's going to be active. Ceremony, again, a a funeral is a ceremony. That doesn't, that's A, that's usually... um, Unless your 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 relation, it's it's a attendee thing, and it's not very positive. So I think that's not misunderstanding the power of language. But the word driving in the person's answer was the most concerning for me, which was dr- who is driving this team to where first of all, and then how does it feel to be a passenger in a vehicle or in a mode of transportation that's being driven? And I did ask this group that question, like, how do you feel as a passenger? Do you feel self-managed like the very next sentence was? And they said, no, actually, when I'm a passenger, I feel the opposite of self-managed. I feel loss of control. Um, I feel unsafe because a lot of people, whether they know it or not, do not um, completely feel safe if they're not driving. And even if they're driving, they may not feel safe. But Again, I just don't think it's what people like you and me are hoping for in the workplace of being passengers driven by some, you know, other person, whether they're on the team or not. How often do you see that happen, though, that people and I was talking to Marge earlier today, they're they're like sheep. They're being told what to do and they just follow along like they have no active part in driving and then steering into the direction that they want to. They are there. They are moving because someone is someone else is telling them to do or making them move, but they don't have an active part in actually con- contributing to the destination. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it, just to continue the analogy a little bit, like if you think about why any of us would become a passenger, it's normally, well, we want to save money. Um, it's safe. It feels safer to some people. Uh, it's cheaper. It's faster. Maybe that's why we call an Uber versus walking. Uh, it, it could be a little lazier in some ways. And I think if you apply that to teams, I would answer your question by, I see this all the time. And when I see people who are happy to be a passenger who's driven around day to day, week to week, sprint to sprint, I always just get curious about why. And I do come back to this idea of like, what are you afraid of? Like, if you don't like where you're going, why are you not opening your mouth and saying, why are you comfortable being a passenger in the things that you, that affect you? And many people will admit to me, like, you know, I, I've tried to care before and nobody really listens to my opinion. Maybe they feel like they can't, maybe they're a quote unquote junior person on the team. Um, maybe they think that's not in their job description, or maybe they're the type of person who just wants to be told what to do because that's comfortable. That's easy. That's safe. 
Sure. And I think that's, uh, I see that happening. That kind of people, that kind of person are in scrum teams quite frequently. Mm -hmm. But I think as an organization, you've skipped the step as well. Mm -hmm. What kind of, we're implementing scrum now or whatever framework. And usually you want to have not the passive kind of people who are sitting in the backseat and are be, enjoy being told what to do. You want to have pro, uh, proactive people who can actually go against the grain, go for it. The actual, how would you say that goal getters, if you will, like, to, to get with the cheap term. Yeah. Yeah. But I frequently miss that question. What kind of skills, what kind of personality traits are we looking for in our team? And do we have those? And because Coming back to your your answer on the product owner question, what is how am I impeding flow? This personality type, this kind of behavior, is an impediment in your flow, but just as well. Yeah, you know, and if I think about myself, there are days where I just want to be told what to do. Like I just want to have a punch list. I just want to have a list of things to do. I want to be left alone so I can get them done. And that, and I think we all need those days from time to time. Like I can't be a highly engaged front of the room pot stirring catalyst all the time. But if you don't have those on the team or if you are not like that just for yourself regularly, you're going to atrophy. Um, and I do not think it's an introvert versus extrovert thing. I, I do not think that's what we're talking about. Many introverts I know care deeply. They are, they want to be a participant in things. They want to decide. They want to talk. But I think that some of these things might come a little easier to those of us who talk and contribute a little more freely. Um, but I, I, like you said, I do see this constantly. And one of the phrases that I tell my classes, my clients is agility is a move of from my work to our work. And it's a move from me to we. And I, they like those is what they tell me because they can remember them. They're kind of like a, 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 you can get that a tweet link. You can see that stitched on a pillow, but the, the other side of that coin is always, I'm not saying you're not an individual. So the, I think the balance, and this is where scrum masters or coaches or other people can help is how do we create a, a team of individuals who value their individualism, but also are a real team and group of people? And how, it's like you want both. And that's one of those liberating structures of uh, there's a number of liberating structures that can help with that. Like, how do we how do we get both? I think everyone is interesting and everyone has something to say and has their opinion and their perspective is just up to well, in this case, you and me as scrum masters or as coaches to, to get those thoughts out and to provoke them into to sharing that. And for leadership, whether you being a manager or a scrum master or a coach or whatever, C-level, it's up to leadership to create that environment of mutual trust where people feel safe enough to speak up and that they feel that their their voice is heard and that it matters and then they can actually actively contribute to moving the needle towards the delivery of value and delivering something that contributes to solving whatever problem that your clients and stakeholders have. Right. So I have a phrase on this idea, and I want to ask you what your thoughts on it are. And I'm, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but um, when you hear the phrase divide and conquer in the context of a team working together, what are your, what are your thoughts? 
Oh, that's a good question. It really depends if you look at it from a team internal perspective or the more external one. If it's the, the first thing that came to mind was divide the work amongst us as a team and conquer the world with our product that we're building. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that, that came to mind. Um, relating this to more common workspace, I would say, like, we divide the work to people who are most comfortable with the work and we conquer whatever iReview tower that we're working mm. on or in. Yeah. So it really depends. The the very useless but all-encompassing consultant answer. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, I know. If you and I each had a nickel for the amount of times we said that, we'd probably, we'd probably not have to work anymore. Um and I do like your reflection. I'm going to think about this when we hang up is about that phrase and how it relates to one team. Or if we were looking at an entire project or product or program to say, well, let's divide and conquer on this. So I do think it can yeah. be different. It can probably be harmful in both places. It can probably be beneficial in both places, but yeah, yeah. good thought. I think that also requires the thought that you as a company move forward as an elite unit really big elite unit uh, as a battalion, if you will, but that you're all in the entire company striving to achieve the same goal. Right now too frequently, I come across organizations that work very factioned. Mm -hmm. Like you have many, many companies working in the same companies and they're all trying to compete with each other. And therefore they're not really thinking about what is it that unites us, that makes us move ahead of the field as one team? No, it's we got to get the biggest budget because else the department over there from Steve is going to get it and they're going to go away with a new cruiser. Well, you I don't you want know that. what unites them, right? It's Mockingjay. It's Katniss Everdeen. That's who unites all the factions. And, you know, <laughs> we're joking, but I have said to many clients and groups, you've kind of created a Hunger Games type mentality here of this is the faction that does database work. This is the front end faction. This is the sales and marketing and product faction. And they have either purposely or accidentally created a competition that is a zero sum game where one has to win and one has to lose. And they sometimes think agility or scrum or just one thing like one technique or one tool is going to be this big uniter that's going to bring all these things together. And I just, I have yet to find that one thing that just unlocks that, but helping people see it and talk about it is probably a good first step. Yeah. And I think a powerful question in that way is what can I do to make the whole better today and not on the longer term, but finger pointing and no, I don't have to change because someone else is not changing. I think that's a very common thing to do and a very easy because you don't have to go against the grain. So you don't have to feel the consequences of that Mm -hmm. friction, but really think about, all right, I can either sit here and, and start blaming the rest of the world for all the mistakes and the mess ups that I see, or I can go and see what I can do today to make life a little bit better. Right. And I think that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's why people like you and I get hired a lot is to be that person who will do something catalyzing 
regardless of the con of the consequences. And what I heard when you were talking there is somebody is either maybe not afraid, but uncomfortable, stressed, anxious about the consequences. So it's easier to just go along to get along. I don't know if that's a phrase uh, in Dutch, but go along to get along is just, you know, it's the easy thing. Yeah, correct. It's not necessarily the same translation in Dutch, but I get yeah. what you're saying. Are you looking at the time, man? Yes, I would love to keep talking, but um, it's probably good to put a pin in it and think about what we want to talk about next. Exactly. If there is one thing, one advice that you would give your give the audience, the listeners today, and it could be about anything, what would it be? Think about what you or who you're helping or who you're working with what are they afraid of? What are they stressed about? What are they worried about that they're not aware of or that they're not verbalizing? And if you can find a way to help them with that, they will almost always see you as somebody they'd like to have around. Sweet. I think that's a perfect closure for this episode. Now, again, if you're listening to this episode and you think, well, I have some questions that I would like to have answered, or you have a suggestion who we could invite as a guest, We'll share the mural in the uh, show notes. You can access it. We're going to experiment with this as well. It's new to us. Uh, so hopefully it doesn't get blasted and there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, obscenity in there. We're just going to see where this where this stuff goes. So put your questions in or send us a, a message on LinkedIn or whatever platform you want to use, the Mastering Agility Discord. Uh, feel free to, to ask us any questions and we'll, we'll make an episode like this around this. Jim, I love this. Thank you very awesome. much, man. Thanks for having me. Hoping to talk soon. Can't wait to see these questions roll in. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, or joining our warm and welcoming Discord community. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.